0: The archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series from 2 Corinthians is God's Call to Church Action. Today's title, Comfort for Days of Crisis, our text, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 7. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. Turn with me if you will, please, to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. Chapter 1, Corinthians, 2nd Epistle, Chapter 1. We are pursuing a series of studies throughout this precious document we call the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians under the general theme of God's call to church action. We've introduced the epistle... And we've considered the first two verses. This morning we get right under the burden of its main message. Church action in the realm of Christian fellowship. Now, although the word fellowship, as such, does not occur in this first section of the epistle, the fact remains that almost every verse In this first section, one through seven, is an elucidation of what New Testament fellowship really is. Paul bears his heart to us in the most personal and emotional fashion. And this very sharing of his heart is, in essence, Christian fellowship. For instance, this morning, the Fellowship of Consolation, chapter one, verses three through eleven, Then the fellowship of vindication, chapter 1, 12 through 22. The fellowship of explanation, 1, 23 through 2, 4. The fellowship of restoration, chapter 2, 14 through 6, 10. The fellowship of separation, chapter 6, 11 through 7, 1. And then the fellowship of jubilation, 7, 2 to verse 16. It's all fellowship. This sharing in Jesus Christ. Now through this kind of fellowship, the Apostle Paul calls the church not only to sense the passion of God and to see the mission of God, but to share the action of God in the ministry of reconciliation. If the local church is not a reconciling fellowship, then the local church is not a Christian fellowship. It behoves us, therefore, to examine what Paul means by Christian fellowship. And this we shall proceed to do in this sevenfold manner. This morning we shall restrict ourselves to the first seven verses here and think of the fellowship of consolation. So will you open your New Testaments and look again with me at those first seven verses and particularly three through seven having given his words of greeting in verses one and two the apostle now dilates upon a theme which is very close to his heart indeed he's so dominated by the concept of consolation that he uses the word ten times in five verses and with the cognate verbs no less than 28 times throughout the epistle comfort consolation Exhortation. He's dominated by the theme. The comfort of God which Paul had experienced in his own life was something he longed to share with the church of God in Corinth and with the saints of all time. And we who live today know only too well that comfort and consolation and cheer are never out of season. I look across this great audience this morning And the Spirit of God witnesses with my spirit that there are broken hearts here. There are sad hearts here. There are bereaved hearts here. There are perplexed hearts here. For we're human. We pass through another week and God alone knows what's hidden behind the facade and exterior of every precious young life and older one here. We're in a heartbreak world, as someone has called it. And we need the comfort of God. If the church of Jesus Christ is to move into action, she must know the comfort of God in her ministry, the encouragement of God mediated through the Savior and activated by the Spirit. So we come to the verses before us and observe in the first place what I'm going to call the promise of consolation. Verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, the promise of consolation. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. The music has interpreted, now let us interpret it in terms of exposition to our hearts. Paul opens his subject with one of his characteristic doxologies, He says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. He then proceeds to show that consolation is the promise of God to all his people. He states quite categorically that it is God who comforts us in all our tribulations. And this is because God can never fail. That is one of the great attributes inherent in his character that he can never fail. And he who has promised his comfort will never fail his people. The promise of consolation is traced to God, even our Father, in a threefold way. Look at it. First, the God of revelation. The God of revelation. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation of God as Father was uniquely and distinctly made known in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is true that in the Old Testament scriptures, God is occasionally prefigured and even presented to us as Father. But on the whole, the concept in the Old Testament is that rather of the Creator, the Judge, the God, who is altogether distinct. This transcendence of God is so apparent in these sacred writings that the Jews were even reluctant to pronounce the name of God and ultimately forgot him altogether and didn't know his name. When we come to the New Testament, however, all is changed. John breaks through in that mighty, majestic prologue of his and he says, the only begotten Who is in the bosom of the father. The bosom of the father. Sensing the very heart throb of God. He hath told him out. He hath explained him. He hath expounded him. The high and holy one. Who inhabits eternity. Dwells in a light unapproachable. Has become revealed to us. In Jesus Christ. As the God of love. As the God of grace as the God of all comfort. The very revelation of God in our Lord Jesus Christ is guarantee that consolation is available to all his people who look up to him in sincerity and in truth and cry, Abba, Father, God of all comfort, Father of all mercies, I need your consolation. The promise of consolation then is rooted in the very revelation of God. Secondly, not only in the revelation of God, but in the dedication of God, the God of dedication. Look again at verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies. Now this precise phrase does not occur again in the New Testament. Although we have the noun in an expression employed by Paul in the 12th chapter of Romans when he says, I beseech you, brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul pleads with believers in that verse to yield their all to God because of his mercies. Because of his mercies. In other words, he associates the idea of dedication with the mercies of God. And he says, just, just as we yield ourselves to God because of his mercies God has first dedicated himself to us because of his mercies he is the father of mercies and in those mercies has been included the promise of comfort and consolation he is the God full of compassion gracious long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth, as the psalmist tells us. So this consolation, this promise of consolation, that which you need, my friend, that which you are longing for this morning, that for which your heart has ravished after, that promise of consolation is yours this morning, for it's rooted in the God of revelation. It's rooted in the very God of dedication. It's rooted in the God of consolation. For the third phrase here in our text, three. Puts it perfectly. Blessed be God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. The sequence of thought here is both beautiful and biblical. Divine revelation leads to divine dedication, and this in turn culminates in divine consolation. It is because of the self giving of God in Christ that we know Him to be the God of all comfort. How wonderful to know that there is no experience of sinfulness for which there isn't the comfort of pardon. There is no experience here of the helplessness of man which isn't rewarded by the comfort of God's power. There is no experience here of the mournfulness and brokenness of a heart that isn't matched by the God of all peace and consolation that word comfort gathers up and conjures up everything the Bible knows about love and grace and understanding and comfort and wisdom and consolation and strength and undergirding he is the God of all comfort the promise of consolation rooted in the God of revelation, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Made known as Father in Jesus Christ. The God of all mercies, the Father of all mercies, the God of dedication, who in mercy bent down to inferiors, deserving nothing but hell and poured out his love for us by dying upon a gibbet. The God of all comfort, yes, the God of all consolation. It's the God who promises you comfort, consolation, and cheer this morning. But having told us that, he moves on to something which is tremendously important. And here is where you and I come in in church action. There is not only here the promise of consolation, but the divine purpose of consolation. The divine purpose of consolation. Look at verses 3, 4, and 6. Blessed be God who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God and whether we be afflicted it is for your consolation and salvation, says the Apostle Paul. There is a purpose in comfort. God comforts us not in order that we might be the terminal recipients of this wonderful comfort and consolation, but God comforts us and pours his consolation into us that we might be the means and the media of comforting others. And we live in a broken world. Think of the sadness in Vietnam. Think of the homes that are broken and smashed across our countries today because of sons that are being cut down that's very weak. Think of divided homes because of divorce and delinquency. Think of hospitals. Think of mental homes. Think of the soreness of a broken world today. God wants to comfort And his ministry is that of comfort and consolation through the church. The church in action, reaching out to those who need comfort today. And so these verses deserve a very close study if they would yield their meaning and message. Paul is telling us here that only as we claim the promise of consolation can we share the purpose of consolation. Such a laying hold of God for comfort presupposes the experience of suffering and sorrow. And in this school of affliction we learn the purpose of consolation. And we learn that that purpose is to develop a ministry within us. A ministry within us. And Paul calls it a twofold ministry here. First, notice, the ministry of compassion. The ministry of compassion. Blessed be God who comforteth comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God, the ministry of compassion. As we shall see in a moment, Paul had been in the school of tribulation and affliction and therefore was qualified to write in this fashion. And I want to add, and I want to add with firmness this morning, only those who know how to suffer really know how to serve. Compassion for others is the fruit of Calvary. We can never feel for others, weep for others or even share with others until our hearts have been broken at the cross. It does not necessarily mean that one has to physically suffer before you can comfort others. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go through some particular type of affliction in order to comfort others though God always takes those afflictions and trials and sicknesses and weaves them into a ministry of compassion but the supreme place we learn compassion is at the foot of the cross and until a man says I know when I was broken I know when I knelt there in brokenness and seeing my savior broken at Calvary it broke me and I'm a broken man I'm a broken man my heart's been smashed and it's through a smashed and broken heart that compassion is ministered. Perhaps there was never a time in our generation when there was a greater need for compassion. The secular age in which we live tends to make us indifferent and insensitive to the needs of others. Sin no longer shocks us. Sorrow no longer melts us. And alas... Suffering no longer breaks us. It is unspeakably sad that our young people and older ones too can watch tragedy dramatized upon our screens, whether in television or whether upon our movie screens outside. They can watch tragedy dramatized in modern life and react either with stoical composure or sadistic contentment. Oh, for a heart of compassion. Oh, for a heart of compassion. Oh, for the compassion that weeps for the city, that weeps for the broken family, that weeps for the lost individual. Our Savior had it. He couldn't look out upon the men and women of his day wandering like sheep without a shepherd, without being moved with compassion for them. He wept over a city and he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? But ye would not, ye would not, your house is left unto you desolate. And he sobbed with convulsions. He sobbed with strong crying. The compassion of Christ. Paul tells us in his first epistle to the Corinthians that if one member suffer, All members suffer with it. Or one member be honored. All members rejoice in it. Such sympathy and empathy are the product, I repeat, of a compassionate heart. Do you know anything about compassion, my friend? Or are you the exact replica of the type of person we find in a secularized age today? Stoical, indifferent, insensitive? And even in God's house, under the preaching of God's word, moved by God's spirit, you resist. You resist until you become hardened, hardened, apathetic, indifferent, unconcerned. You need to be broken. You need to be smashed at Calvary. Until you're smashed, God will never use you. Never use you. Activism, you may be involved in it to the hilt. But your reward in heaven will be nothing. God only blesses those who know what it is to be broken for others. The ministry of compassion. But with this ministry of compassion, I want you to notice the ministry of salvation. For compassion leads to salvation, and Paul mentions it right here in verse 6. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Twice over, salvation. There is a ministry of compassion, which leads to a ministry of salvation. The word salvation here has both an esoteric as well as an evangelistic flavor. It is within the church as well as outside of the church. When we know the compassion of God, there is a ministry in which we can engage right here in the church, in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes down to the practical duty of caring for one another. The writer to the Hebrews has it in mind when he says, Let us consider one another to provoke one another unto good works and love. And there is that great statement in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians where he says, the member should have the same care of one another. The member should have the same care of one another. What same care? The same care that God has. The same care that the Savior has. The same care that the Holy Spirit has. The same care that I may have for this brother, I should have for that brother and yon brother and yon sister. I can't imagine anything which is going to draw our church together in this ministry of salvation to our own hearts than the Shepherd Plan, which has recently been launched. God speed it. God use it. God cause it to the means of expressing the care our Father has for each one of us, but worked out through every member contact. Such a ministry as this may not hit the headlines or even attract the attention of the pastoral staff of the church, but it's a ministry of salvation which has its source in the very heart of God. Very heart of God. Let me ask you a personal question. Are you concerned deeply about every one of our missionaries? Are you concerned very deeply about every member of our staff, pastoral or executive? Are you concerned deeply about every member of our official life? Are you concerned deeply about every member of our committees? Are you concerned deeply about every member of our church? Yes, that little soul away out there on the periphery who has never lifted her voice in a church meeting, never called attention to herself, never paraded herself, but is just as precious to God as every one of us and perhaps very much more in the sense in which her life is totally yielded in a way we don't know anything about. Are we concerned for one another? Do we know the ministry of compassion, which leads out to a ministry of salvation? Then, of course, there is the evangelistic aspect of this salvation. It is worse than useless trying to preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ if our hearts are not full of compassion. Indeed, one of the reasons why our Savior healed and fed the multitudes was in order that he might show people that he really cared. He really cared. As a consequence, he never lacked the hearing because people knew that he was the Christ of compassion. The Christ of compassion. I'll never forget hearing one of the great evangelists of Argentina, Fernando Vangioni, speaking to a group of ministers about this matter of compassion. He recalled the day he was down here in Spanish Harlem conducting a crusade. And During that crusade there was one memorable night when the power of God came down upon that audience. And he gave an invitation and scores came forward to seek the Savior. Most of the night was spent dealing one with another throughout that great line of inquirers. Fatigued and ready to go, he stretched for his hat and coat and he was leaving when at the door a striking young woman confronted him. Looking into his face, he said, Mr. Dhanjani, I don't believe in your methods or your message and least of all in your motives. Tired the man of God sat down and tried to counsel with this striking young woman. But to no attempt whatsoever to convince her save to show that he cared. But she shook her head. It was a vain attempt. The man... Just couldn't pierce the exterior. So he dropped on his knees and he said, I'm going to pray for you. And as he dropped on his knees and began to pray, something happened. Something happened from heaven. The Holy Spirit took hold of him and broke him. And through that heart of his poured out in prayer... The Holy Spirit expressed the compassion and the consolation of God and convulsed in strong crying and tears that matched the Savior's tears mentioned in Hebrews 5. He just wept and broke his heart. The young woman went over to him and said, Pastor Johnny, Pastor Johnny, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I never knew you cared so much. I never knew you cared so much. The only men who've ever come into my life were selfish and sinful and sexy. They only wanted what they could get. No one has ever prayed for me. No one has ever wept for me. Not even my father has ever wept for me. You must care. Tell me about this Jesus who gives such a heart of compassion. That doctor led her to Christ. She was gloriously converted. The battle was over. She was the savior, and she's lived to show it. As Dr. Van Joni told us, compassion, the compassion of Christ in salvation had won the battle. Had won the battle. Amy Wilson Carmichael of the Donova Fellowship in India knew what I'm talking about when she wrote Oh, for a passionate passion for souls. Oh, for a pity that yearns. Oh, for a love that loves unto death. Oh, for a heart that burns. Compassion. Salvation. This is the purpose of consolation. Not in order that the comfort of God might be selfishly possessed but that the comfort of God might be mediated through broken hearts to a broken world do you know anything about that my friend do you know anything about that when did you last weep for your unconverted son when did you last spend travelling hours on your knees for your unconverted daughter when did you pray last for your unconverted husband your unconverted wife. When did you last break your heart at the foot of the cross for lost souls? When did you last pray that Sunday evening here at Calvary Baptist Church should be a movement of the Spirit of God in conviction, in repentance, in regeneration? Why? Because the compassion of God had broken through a hard exterior of a church to show people that we really care. We really care. The promise of consolation, the purpose of consolation. But Alongside of that, I conclude with the third tremendous thought Paul has here, so tremendous that I reel under it, the divine process of consolation, the divine process of consolation. And when you've mastered this last point, you may wonder no longer as to why you haven't compassion. The divine process of consolation. For in verses 5 and 11 linked together we have these words for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. He also helping together by prayer for us. In order to claim the promise And to sense the purpose of consolation, it is necessary to experience the process of consolation. And the Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt as to the divine workings whereby we enter into the fellowship of consolation. First of all, notice in verse 5, there must be fellowship with the Savior in tribulation. Fellowship with the Savior in tribulation. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Now we know that the atoning sufferings of Christ were unique and complete. No son of Adam's race will ever be a partaker of these sufferings except in the redeeming and saving benefits. On the other hand, Paul makes it quite clear that there is such a thing as the outworking of Christ's sufferings in terms of the church's ministry today. Writing to the Colossians he says, I am made a minister and now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind, which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake which is the church. And his supreme ambition when he writes the letter to the Philippians is simply this, that I may know Christ, that I may know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death if By any means, I might attain unto that out-resurrection from amongst the dead. Says Paul, this is the process of compassion and consolation. It's experiencing the sufferings of Christ in me. What he did at Calvary can never be repeated. And I have no share in that save in its benefits. But the outworking of what he did at Calvary is something I can experience. It's not suffering for Christ, but with Christ, sharing the heartbeat of a Savior in heaven... Breaking my heart in order that I may win broken hearts outside. Do you know anything about that? There is a suffering with Christ as well as a suffering for Christ, and Paul knew both experiences. Indeed, he tells us in verses 8 to 10 here of an episode he had in Asia when he despaired even of life and accepted the sentence of death as inevitable. Some scholars maintain that this is a reference to the tumult in Ephesus when he fought, as he says, with beasts. Whether this is so or not, or whether Paul is referring to a serious illness or the unspeakable mental anguish of the troubles that were going on in Corinth, we shall never know, never know anything that's spoken on this is sheer speculation. What is clear is that the pressure beyond measure led him led him to experience the fellowship of consolation with Jesus Christ his Savior. With George MacDonald Paul could say the Son of God suffered unto death not in order that we might be saved from suffering but that our suffering might be like his. Through this tribulation he learned more and more to die to self and more and more To appropriate the resurrection life of Christ. This is the highest form of Christian fellowship. This is the highest form of Christian fellowship that human beings can ever experience. Not to suffer for Christ, that's persecution, but to suffer with Christ, that's passion. To share the travail of the Savior at the throne. Has it ever occurred to you, my friend, that Jesus, there as man at the throne today, has a broken heart? has a broken heart Isaiah tells us that he's traveling traveling now until his soul is satisfied and he's traveling over a groaning creation over a groping world a growing church he feels what's happening in Vietnam he feels what's happening in Nigeria he feels what's happening in the world he feels what's happening in hearts right here in Harlem in the city of New York he feels what's happening here in some of your hearts are you sharing this with Jesus There must be fellowship with Christ in tribulation. In the second place, will you notice, there must be fellowship with the Spirit in consolation. Verse 7, And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be of the consolation, is superfluous to anyone who is following me intelligently here this morning. To have to point out that the word translated comfort and consolation throughout this passage is used of the Holy Spirit. It is the name of the Holy Spirit. You remember that when Jesus promised his spirit in the upper room, he told his disciples that he would send them another comforter that he might abide with them forever. It is therefore supremely the ministry of the Holy Spirit to undergird to comfort, to strengthen, to encourage the believer in all his trials and tribulations and also to give him the compassion for a world that needs salvation. By fellowship with the Savior we are called into tribulation. It is part of our privilege at the same time with the Savior to enter into tribulation. He said in the world you shall have tribulation. William Barclay reminds us in the early years of Christianity, the man who chose to become a Christian chose to face trouble. He actually chose to face trouble. He became a Christian because he decided to face trouble. And of course, this is precisely what our Lord promised. He said, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So there is fellowship with the Savior in tribulation. But while we're in that tribulation, there is fellowship with the Spirit in consolation. Alongside of these stern realities of life, that is to say of tribulation, the Holy Spirit is sent down from heaven to strengthen God's people, that in tribulation we shall know consolation, strengthening and compassion, not not to pity our lot not to sit down and give up the ghost not to sit under a juniper tree and wish a relinquishment from our prophetic yoke but accepting all the tribulation as a means of enriching our consolation in order that we might strengthen and comfort others there must be fellowship with the Savior in tribulation to be sure There must be fellowship with the Spirit in consolation, to be sure. But alongside of that, and in conclusion, there must be fellowship with the saints in intercession. And this is a word to my heart. And oh, I've been convicted about this. And I want you to see it as we close here this morning. Look at that verse 11. Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the members of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. You see fellowship with the Savior in tribulation melts us to sense fellowship with the Spirit in consolation and in turn this moves us to seek the fellowship of saints in intercession. So Paul refers to the help he received by the intercessory prayers of that little nucleus of saints at Corinth who weren't bickering with one another but were really praying for the great apostle and Paul believed with all his heart in the efficacy of intercessory prayer not only does he mention it here he mentions it in Romans and he mentions it in Philippians listen to the language I beseech you brethren for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea that my service which I have in Jesus Christ may be accepted of all saints that I may come by the will of God with joy unto you in the fullness of the blessing of the the gospel of Christ. Pray for me, he says. Pray for me. Pray for me. In the epistle to the Philippians, he says, I knew deliverance, he says, and it came to me through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit to the Ephesians, he says, "Pray with all prayer and supplication, with all, sen- all perseverance for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given me. He believed in the efficacy of the intercessory prayer of the saints. Paul testifies to what happened in his life again and again because they prayed for him. He sails right here. here. I was delivered from so great a death. I am being delivered. I believe I'll yet be delivered through the prayers of you people at Corinth. I say what a responsibility this places upon us who claim to pray for our missionaries abroad. One of our elders Mr. James Priestley, with his dear wife, has just returned from New Guinea. I shook his hand this morning. I'm aching to ask him for a report of what's happening to his beloved daughter and son-in-law away out there in New Guinea, whether they really sense the impact of our praying, whether our hearts of compassion ever reach out to them in praying. This is fellowship of consolation and fellowship of intercession. How often... Are we directly responsible for the failure or success of God's servants according to whether or not we prayed or neglected to pray? So Paul reminds his readers that the deliverance he had experienced was due to the upturned faces of those who had mentioned him in prayer at the throne of grace, both in prayer and in thanksgiving. So we see the divine process of consolation. It involves fellowship with the Savior in tribulation, fellowship with the Spirit in consolation, then fellowship with the saints in intercession. God make us men and women who know the comfort of God, not only in relation to our own needs. God knows how I need comfort and consolation. God knows how your heart needs it this morning. But there's something more important than just Comfort for me, me as an individual. No, I receive comfort through tribulation with my Savior, consolation with the Spirit, intercession with beloved praying friends, not just for me, but that through my life and through my church there may be action in the world in compassion and salvation. A church of compassion is a church in action. Are you with us? Are you with it? The fellowship of consolation. Let us pray. Oh, our Father, we bow in thy presence and ask what preaching can never do. What homiletics can never achieve. Thou wilt by thy Holy Spirit bring home to every heart here. And should there by any reason of imagination be a non-broken heart here, oh, break hearts today. Break hearts today. Melt us until we become men and women of compassion. Minister to us the spirit of consolation. And with that burden, Lord, let us go forth to win men and women outside who need the consolation and comfort of God in Jesus Christ. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford on our website thank you so much